Welcome to Drop Everything Podcast number 65. This is the last podcast for 2018. My wife Karen and I and the entire staff and crew of the Drop Everything Podcast would like to wish you happy holidays. We have a great guest for this episode, the wonderful, the talented, the very charming Bree Crabtree. As always, this podcast is brought to you by the IJA, International Jugglers Association. Find out about this great group of jugglers, all their activities, all their products at juggle.org. All right, sit back, drop everything, and get ready for Bree Crabtree. Welcome to the last Drop Everything podcast of the year. This is number 65, and I have a great guest to end us off. How about a big hand, everybody who's out there listening for Bree Crabtree. Hello, Bree. Hi, Dan. I feel very fortunate to catch you on one of your rare days off. Can you explain what you're doing this month and how come you're working so darn much? This month, my main job is to do table entertainment at a tea time, holiday tea time, at a gingerbread house at a fancy hotel. And is that uh, mainly juggling? How is juggling as a walk-around act? Is it magic and other stuff as well? You know, I make it work. This is actually my third year doing the job, and I do dress as an elf. I play the character of an elf. And when I started the job, I was doing juggling balls. I was doing my parasol and ring, Rocky Raccoon. But over the years, I've always really been interested in magic, and I decided to put the time in uh, but since this is a reoccurring job, I knew I would get to really work the magic and use... It's just easier to do magic in a restaurant. It's not as big. <laughs> and how does practicing magic compare with practicing juggling? Do you enjoy them both equally, or is one more enjoyable and one more practical? I do not enjoy practicing magic. For me, juggling is big and physical and more of using your entire body and... Magic is very small, and even though they're both repetitive tasks, it's a lot harder for me to practice the magic. It's not as satisfying right away. Like, you don't really see any results right away. But with juggling, I find you do. And I actually got interested in both when I was around 15 years old. Um, But it was really juggling that I really connected with because of the somatic movement with it. And what was your first experience with juggling? Did you see it on television or you see it in person? What was that first experience like? I don't really remember seeing any jugglers. There's just something in my brain and I was just wired like, okay, it's time to learn magic and juggling. And I got the klutz book and I learned it from the klutz book. So you had those square bean bags? Those were your first juggling balls? Yeah, I had those forever. I loved those bean bags. Yeah. You're saying there was something in your brain. Was there anybody else in your family involved in entertainment or this was something that just came to you spontaneously? I've always been interested in magic. So I think juggling is just sort of a related activity in that sense. And, you know, in the sense of everything in the world, Juggling's super related, I think. My mom's very quirky. She definitely uh, encouraged me to go with the juggling. And I also got connected with a juggling teacher when I was about 15. And I took lessons once a week. Who, who was your teacher? And what kind of lessons did you take? As, and how were they structured? His name was Roy Melanson. And he was a Canadian guy who had relocated to California and gotten married and settled down. And I got connected to him through a clown troupe that I had joined also in high school. We would go to hospitals and entertain kids. And I would go once a week. He had converted part of his garage or maybe his spare room into his house into the juggling room. 
and you know it's covered with like posters and memorabilia and all kinds of props and that's where I really learned like how how diverse juggling can be he's the he gave me IJ magazines and tapes and he was an IJ member in fact there's a little memorial article about him in one of the IJ magazines oh so was he older or, or did he so he passed away yeah he passed away about mm, maybe four or five years ago at this point well that's sad to hear yeah he was very into the juggling community he wasn't famous Right. He really loved juggling and shared all of that with me, and and I got exposed to all of that at a young age. At that time, were you thinking about juggling as a career, or was this just something you enjoyed but didn't see it as a a future livelihood? No, Roy was always telling me I should do it, and he's like, "There's no girls doing it. You should do it, Bree. You would be amazing." At that time in my life, the path was for me was very clear to do school, go to college, get a degree, and do something like that, and that's. That's just what everybody told me to do. So that's what I did. Hmm. Like, I didn't think I could be a performer. Now, now do you have brothers and sisters? Were anybody else uh, in inspiring you to not go on that path? Or just that's what you saw in your life? I'm an only child. And hmm. I did want to go to college. I did. I love learning. And I do love school and things like that. I don't think it was really till I developed the self-confidence to know I could do it by myself that really made it happen. I would have thought you would have gone into maybe enter, you know, some kind of drama or speech or communications, but you studied wildlife and fish conservation biology. What, what made you choose that path? I've always loved animals and the environment. And when I was younger, you know, I wanted to save the earth and do all those sorts of things. And I actually was very shy. There's no way I would like sing a song publicly or be in a play or anything like that. I was, yeah, I was a very, like, shy kid, and I liked learning about animals. I remember the first time I met you, you seemed very talented, but you didn't seem like you were interested in entertaining. We actually had you in one of our early video projects. Remember that, me and Barry, we did the Gravity Playground. Yes. Oh, yes. No, I was not thinking about performing. No, I was in college, and that's what I was doing with my time. And I love juggling, so I still practice it all the time, and I was obsessed with it. Let's talk about your first job out of college. You were in an entomology lab job, so you worked with insects. What, what did you do with the insects? Yeah, I worked in a lab that w had some studies going on on how to control an invasive species with natural predators. And it was located in Sonoma County in the wine country here. It involved collecting insects. I would literally drive to a vineyard, scrape the bark off of a grape plant, and take the samples back to the lab. And I was also in charge of maintaining the insect colonies. I've had many, many insect jobs over the years. Once you get one job in entomology, that kind of just like builds out your entire resume and could be your entire life is just getting bug jobs forever. I remember my dad used to get ladybugs and uh, I think praying mantises to control aphids. Yeah, it was the same thing. It, it, it was with mealybugs and wasps. Oh, okay. These uh, tiny little wasps that sting the mealybugs and then lay their babies inside of them and then kill the mealybugs. But aren't there some inherent dangers about bringing in uh, foreign species that then they, may, they might become a problem? Yeah, but that's what these experiments are all about. Right, to make sure that, that you can control it. And who's to say it's more dangerous than like crazy chemicals? I don't know. Right. But you are playing with science and with the, the consequences of that could be catastrophic, right? Yeah, anything <laughs> could be catastrophic. <laughs> right, <laughs> you're taking too far. So, okay, so, you, so you've studied wildlife and fish conservation and you got these jobs in the, in the bug labs, let's call them. Yeah, I pursued that for a little bit. 
<laughs> okay, did you start getting a, a casual job here or there? Or was there sort of a switch all of a sudden where you thought, okay, I'm going to make this my career and put this other stuff behind me? What was the transition like? It was a very slow progression. I did, you know, when people found out I juggle, I would be asked to do kids' birthday parties or maybe a strolling gig here or there. And I would say yes, because like deep down in the back of my mind, like, yeah, I always did want to try being a full-time performer. It was just so alluring to have a lifestyle that where nobody was in charge of me but myself. That's ultimately what I want. Well, you really, you really created that, too, because you're such a good marketer and such a good person on the social media. So you really embraced the whole thing. Yeah. Yeah. I really just want to be my own boss. And I've always had a hard time working for other people. So this is the best job I've ever had. Well, great. That's encouraging to other people looking to sort of take this path. Now, you also take a lot of workshops. Were there, did you start taking workshops early with other performers or is that something you realized after a certain point you needed to have more mentorship? Once I decided I was going to go be like full-time entertainer, I realized I needed to get my performance game brushed up because like I, I've never done acting classes or any of that. So I started taking clown workshops and improv classes. I had a horrible stage fright and I needed to figure out how to overcome that. Yeah, if I was going to live the life I wanted to do, I had that obstacle to overcome. So I just performed as much as possible and took as many workshops as possible and put myself out there as much as possible to get over it. Was that the best tool for overcoming stage fright? Just sort of like that, just sort of doing it over and over and over until you sort of lost that fear? Or are there other techniques you can share with the listeners? Yeah, doing it over and over, not only just performing, but Small, intimate workshops are terrifying. People will just watch you <laughs> and stare at you, and you don't know what you're supposed to do. You don't, know, you don't know if you're supposed I've done a lot of workshops where they don't tell you what to do. You mean for the exercise? You sort of get up there and, and just improv? Yeah, yeah, because you don't know what you're supposed to do exactly. Right. Sometimes you're not supposed to do anything. And uh, it's just very weird, subtle stuff about connection. It's just all about connection and being yourself. Like you said, sometimes it's smaller with a smaller crowd. Do you find now that if you're in front of a bigger crowd where there's lots of response, that's less intimidating than being with a small group of people? Mm, I do prefer the small, intimate groups. I do prefer close-up strolling entertainment to large, large shows. But once I started figuring out the cadence, I guess, of a show, it's okay. I like I like doing my big show too. What's the biggest audience you've you've had so far? I don't know. I'm still pretty small time. The biggest audience I ever had was at Hardly Strictly Bluegrass, and I was part of a larger stage show, and that was probably two thousand people. However, it was not a focused audience. It was at a music festival, uh, so I didn't really did get to like harness the power of crowd energy. Right, but in not not that kind of intimidating way where it's all about you. So you had you shared the focus a bit more? Yeah, and it was at a music festival. So people in the back aren't really like paying attention. People in the front probably aren't paying attention. Yeah, I've done shows like that. I did one, I remember it was for the end of the uh, rock and roll marathon that ended in, in the city plaza for a huge crowd. And they had a band on. Yeah. I was, I was one of the entertainers. And I remember I was juggling and I thought, I'm killing it. You know, I was juggling to the music. And I yeah. looked up and, and to thousands of people and not a single person was watching. Yeah. I'm like, yeah. oh, okay. <laughs> I'm killing it in my own mind, but that's about it. So, 
sometimes we have those experiences where where what we do is not always appreciated as much as we enjoy and appreciate it ourselves. Yeah. So how did you make the transition? Did you have these small jobs? Was there any particular breakthrough that sort of turned you into a like a, like a more of a long term gig or something where you actually traveled and thought, yeah, now I can do it. I was actually pretty methodical about the whole thing. I started tracking my income with what I made with juggling versus at the time I worked for Flow Toys. I worked in the office. Mm-hmm. So after the entomology job. I found a job that was very flexible and would allow me to leave work. If I had uh, a gig, I could make up the work at a different time. And so I kind of like juggled those two jobs for a while. And can you explain to the audience what, what, what Flow Toys is and what kind of products they make? Let's give them a little shout out. Flow Toys is a LED prop company. They make tools for juggling, spinning, glow clubs, glow staves, and they also really foster a a really nice community in the Bay Area. They have a spin jam every Wednesday. They have this beautiful studio that they let people use and they, they support all kinds of artists in lots of different ways, whether it's like creative projects or space for them to train. And it also helped me to become a full-time performer, to be diverse in my skills. Not only did I learn juggling and magic when I was a teenager, I also learned balloon animals and face painting. And I've been doing that for a long time. And I happened to meet a woman who said, if you get to be a a good face painter, I'll hire you out. And this woman has been instrumental in my career in the Bay Area. She books me for not just face painting gigs, but also juggling gigs. She uh, really connected with me and encouraged me and taught me face painting techniques to make my face painting above average. Yeah, I think your face painting is excellent. I, th- I think it's one of uh, great skill. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, I don't know what it was when I was a kid. I would see face painters at the farmer's market, and I'm like, I want to do that one day. I want to paint beautiful things on people's faces. So that's what I did. That's what I do now. <laughs> well, I think it's important. I think people who want to try to create a career, they have to realize that certainly being a juggler 100% might be their passion, but it's a, it's a rare individual nowadays who can make that their only direction. And if you can kind of have the related directions. Yeah. And I started to phase out the balloon and face paint gigs because every year I just make a a stronger intention of what I'm going to be performing, what I'm going to be making my money from. And it's planned. Well, good. And so your direction is to sort of more and more towards a totally juggling oriented show. Yeah, I would be like like to do my my show full time or earning most of the percentage of my money from that. So now I've been exploring what markets I'm targeting next to do that. What markets are you targeting next? Are you looking towards cruise ships or, or corporate events? What's what's the ultimate dream? Yeah, I would love to work on cruise ships. That seems to be more of a mystery to me. I'm working uh, with somebody on branding right now, and I'm getting my internet image even more powerful. It's going good by myself, but I can't do everything by myself. So I hired somebody to help me with that front before I approach agents for these cruise ships, I'm sort of like getting the press kit together. And county fairs, I'm going to go to the Western Fair Association convention in Reno next year in January. And I got a booth, show them my thing, do the networking thing. Well, that sounds good. Why do you say cruise ships are a mystery? Are you are you not sure what they expect or what, how long the shows are? What about it is sort of uh, not known to you? I want to present them the best possible thing I can. So I hired somebody to help me with graphics and, and things like that. But what about the show itself? I mean, the graphics and the presentation are one thing. 
Oh, I think the show is great. The show is really strong too. So yeah, and I'm work, uh, working on a video. Mm-hmm. And do you think you have enough time? Because nowadays we're looking for as much as 90 minutes, like 245s or 60. I have so much material. Yeah, I have so much material. I have researched. I would like to work on Disney Cruise Ship and I've researched what they're looking for. And I have enough for a family show. I have enough for an adult show. I have enough for like a separate welcome show. Yeah, I've worked Disney Cruises, and that's what they wanted. They have a smaller room where they had a 30-minute kid show, and then later on they have an adult show, which is Disney adult. So they're not expecting anything, you know, too risque. Yeah. And then they have like a 15, 17-minute spot in their big Disney theater, which holds about 2,000 or so. Yeah. So I think you'd be very suited for that because, like you say, you have a diverse entertainment background because you also do a lot of burlesque shows. What, what's that market like? I do from a lot of burlesque shows. It's fun. What does that mean, burlesque? Exactly. How would you describe burlesque? Well, the definition of burlesque is just a variety show. And here in the Bay Area, they really do hold true to that. There's singers, there's dancers, there's people taking off their clothes in a striptease fashion. And then there's me. I'm just doing all my regular juggling, quirky comedy stuff. I don't do anything that's out of my comfort realm. I'm really just doing all the same routines for a different audience. Right, so they're not expecting you to make it R-rated or sort of make it more, uh, I don't want to say scandalous. I'm actually a pretty conservative person in Mm -hmm. terms of burlesque shows. And like I said before, I try to find anywhere I can perform as much as possible. And I discovered this outlet and sometimes the skill level is pretty low there in terms of like tricks of of um what people are presenting like people aren't juggling and unicycling in a burlesque show very often right they're more the the dancers seem to be the the predominant thing they're dancing and doing their like character thing and so when i i met these people they're like great come be in our show you'll add the variety component and they really do embrace that so there's everything there have you ever been in a show that was maybe too much for you? I remember I did the uh, Tourette's Without Regrets show in the Bay Area. Yes. <laughs> and that one got a bit, and I'm not, I don't, I don't think I'm prudish at all, but that one got a bit over the top with sort of the, the sexual nature of it, I thought. Yeah, so a lot of, there's a lot of shock value in mm-hmm. shows in the Bay Area. And I think people just want to be the most extreme sometimes. And they think that's their form of entertainment. And personally with that show, I've performed in that show too. The crowd energy is so intense. It's really hard to absorb all of that. They have a stage that's a catwalk and you're literally surrounded on three sides by people who could like reach out and touch you. And to me, that energy is really, really intense. That's one of the harder shows I've done just in terms of feeling that, that energy. I liked it. I just didn't feel I fit in very well. I think I went over fine in the show itself. But the whole backstage energy and the whole sort of yeah. approach to it was a bit chaotic. Yeah. And it kind yeah. of put me off my game a little bit, to be honest. Yeah. Yeah, but, things can be chaotic and like kind of glamorous, but weird. Yeah. Yeah. I never feel like I fit in anywhere, so. <laughs> well, maybe that's why you became an entertainer. I think we all have that sort of oddball approach that sort of we want acceptance. We want people to see us and notice us, but at the same time, we're insecure and, and we have to fight that. 
Yeah, I like interacting in this way, and and also like I mentioned before, it it allows me to to lead my own scheduled life the way I want to. Yeah, there's certainly a sense of freedom that's very attractive, but there's also a sense of uncertainty. Do you handle that okay with the fact that maybe some months are busy and other months aren't busy, and that every month's a new a new adventure? Is that okay with you? I've never had a scary month, so. I think uh, I've been pretty fortunate in the work that's come my way with recommendations. And I did track my income for, for that year or so, and I saw how it would be. And I was prepared for slumps, I guess. But it's not, I've never had a, a scary month. I think there's something to be said for being a female performer. I'm sure there's, there's, there's advantages and disadvantages. But I think in the market of family entertainment, especially maybe in today's culture, you know, being a, a, a female in sort of a situation where people feel safer, maybe with female entertainers now, than the scary male clown types. I don't know. I've gotten jobs because I'm a woman, and I've not gotten jobs because I'm a woman. So I don't really know what it is. I don't know if people feel safer with me. Sometimes... Sometimes I feel like I'm not taken seriously as well. Like I sound really young and I look really young. But you're, you're, you've been at this for quite a while. You have like 10 years of experience now as a performer. Yeah, I'm actually, I'm 36 years old. So I started when I was 15, like 20 years. Yeah, you could still pass for a teenager. Yeah, and <laughs> that happens all the time. Oh, that's so it's funny. great. I'm going to take advantage of how I look <laughs> now. Sure. Yeah, why not? I think you're very appealing. Yeah, I think that's a good a good trait that, you know, in your pictures and in, in your energy, there's a very sort of uh, pers- personal and personal uh, warmth that comes across when your performances. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> now, also, you live in a very interesting environment now. You live in sort of what I would call, I don't know if you'd call it a juggling enclave, but you, maybe people have heard of it. You live in the Vulcan. Can you explain what the Vulcan is and some of the jugglers who have come through and, and lived in your area? I live in a converted warehouse that's been turned into loft spaces. And it used to be called Vulcan Steel. It used to be a steel foundry. That's why it's called the Vulcan. And I moved to the Bay about 12 years ago and heard about this juggling warehouse. And I had to get myself there, so I got myself there. And as soon as I walked in, the ceilings were like three stories tall. These people hosted a juggling club inside of their house. And they said they needed a housemate in two weeks. And I didn't have anywhere to live. I had just relocated to the Bay Area. I had traveled in Europe for a year to try to see every juggling festival I could. I came back from that trip and found this Vulcan warehouse right away. And I knew I had to move in. And that's what I did. What, what festivals did you go to in Europe? What's uh, EJC and what was it for the tour? I went to the EJC in Greece. Yeah, I set up a tour. I went to the Berlin Juggling Convention. I went to some conventions in France. I did a tour of Eastern Europe. I went to that Prague Juggling Convention. I don't even think a lot of these festivals exist anymore. But I, I think this was 2006 or 2007. And uh, I lived in Edinburgh for a year and... Use that as a home base to like travel from. I went to the Edinburgh Fringe Festival and I wasn't performing at this time. I was just obsessed with juggling and I was really into passing patterns. So that's what I was doing was meeting 
different jugglers and I would collect passing pattern. Were there any performers that stood out that you saw them? You took a piece here, a piece there. Anybody who thought, wow, that person has it all together. or I really like the way they do X, Y, or Z. Who stood out on this little trip and adventure? I met Senmaru, who is a Japanese street performer. And I saw him at the Edinburgh Fringe Festival. And he just blew my mind with his showmanship and how, how friendly he was. During his show, I didn't talk to him personally. I did get his DVD after the show. I got his promotional DVD, which I still watch. <laughs> and he does all these traditional Japanese manipulation juggling tricks. He's amazing. And how do, how do you spell his name and how would we find him? You're saying it's San, San Maru? San Maru. S-E-N-M-A-R-U. Okay. And he does the parasol and ring. And that's why I do the parasol and ring. And that was in Edinburgh. You saw his street show. There's a lot of performers in Edinburgh. That's quite a great experience. He's very likable and engaging. He has very little English in his show, too, which also impressed me. And what do you think about the more hardcore street performers, like the big unicycle types or sort of the more aggressive? Do you see any like sort of the famous types of street performers who... This was almost 10 years ago, and I wasn't in the performing world. I'm not too sure who I right. saw. Right. I do remember seeing like a big balloon act and a guy from Australia who got in the balloon to the song like, who let the dogs out? And he like <laughs> popped out of the balloon and his hair's and pigtails like doggy ears. Funny. And he's like, got his tongue out like he's a dog. So if that guy's around, let me know who that guy is. I remember okay. him. That's quite, quite an adventure though. I remember a clown working this street corner and he was so good at doing the type of entertainment where you're just following people and emulating people and playing with them in very short 10 to 20 second interactions. And that's it. And I really enjoyed him. Yeah, they call that a follow act. I think there was a, a fellow Pepe. I'd like to try that. That's on my back burner of things to do. And he was specifically planted around this corner and you could sit at the angle where you could see both sides of the corner and it was just so fun to watch people be surprised by him and it was also on a on a street it wasn't often cars would go they wouldn't be going fast but he would jump on the cars and interact with the cars too and i was, I was just always uh very taken by his brashness well that's something you can incorporate because you you do a lot of walk arounds even with this elf character i do try it i just i kind of forget to do it sometimes. Well, I think you need some bits, some like sort of pre-planned improv type of bits that you can kind of work into that format. Yeah, I'm I'm the kind of person where I'll set aside maybe three days and I'll go to some busy street corner. One particular place I really liked was this place called Santana Row in San Jose. Have you mm -hmm. been there? Yeah, it's very upscale, kind of an upscale mall. Yeah, but I liked that street. Yeah. Because people are watching in the restaurants, and there was a lot of traffic when I was there. Did you try to do something there? I was uh, specifically hired to go there, but I realized the potential for just going there to practice. I'm the kind of person who will do that. I'll just, like, drive down there, maybe go do it for, like, an hour and see what happens and leave. To do it for tips or just to... Just to... No, just to do it. Just to do it. <laughs> Interesting. I guess I do it in San Francisco too, but... Do you ever run into any kind of problems where people just think you're kind of crazy for doing that? No, because it's like you're entertaining. I mean, I don't do it that often, but if I'm saying if I wanted to pursue this follow act, right, I would go somewhere like that. But I mean, so you dress up as a performer so people know that you're yes. sort of different. I see. Yeah. You're not just following people around. No, 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 no. Okay. No, I... I thought that would be weird. 
like as if I were hired to be there. Nobody's ever questioned me. I got you. But it's obvious you're there as a performer, yeah. not just someone who wants to follow people around and kind of make fun of them. And, and... <laughs> no. Okay. Just trying to get that clear. I don't want you to run into any any problems. <laughs> but you have done also your share of street performing. I yeah. know you work uh, a little bit at Pier 39. What's your experience there like? Uh, most of my street performing is at Pier 39. So there is a stage and a sound system and benches and people know a show is happening. But I do have to do a little bit of crowd gathering and... The thought of street performing is terrifying. That terrifies me. So I did it. I was invited to go down there and audition, and they liked it. It's just something I do because I know it makes me a better performer. It has this weird improv nature about it, which I do like. I don't like the formulaic nature of street shows. I don't like the environment of cold and windy. Mm -hmm. I had to sacrifice a lot of my best stuff with my umbrella because literally like the first day I pulled it out, it turned inside out. Like I can't use it. I really had to think of a lot more things to do that aren't even skill-based. They're just, hey, look at me. There's shiny things over there, over here. Come over here. Yeah, it's a tough environment. They have it at the end of the pier. Yeah. And when the, when the wind comes up or in the evenings or a lot of times, even when it's nice in the East Bay... You think, oh, it's going to be a beautiful day out at the pier, and you get there, and it's cold and windy and damp, and it can be quite quite challenging. 80% of the time that I do a show there, it makes me feel horrible after. I feel like I didn't do any good. It makes me feel the worst. <laughs> and then, you know, maybe two months later, I'll run into somebody, and they're like, oh, I saw you at the pier. The show was so good. I loved it. Me and my family loved it. And I'm just blown away by that feedback that, it's a good place. It toughens you up. And the thing about yeah. the pier also is that you have to kind of be a alternate at first before you can be a regular. I think you have to be like a year, year and a half before they move you into a, a more a positive rotation. And at first you're doing like Tuesdays and Monday yeah. nights. And so right off the bat, it's rough. Like they don't throw you in on the good days. So you really have to get through some rough periods before you can make it work. Yeah, I've never been there on the weekend. I am low on the totem pole. I'm one of the newer performers. And to be honest, my schedule doesn't allow me time to go out there because most of my work comes from recommendations. And I'm hired to do my show at different places. So being at Pier 39 is lower on the priority list for me. But I do, I will go out there on a Tuesday and Wednesday just to stay sharp and work work in that type of environment because I do still find I learn valuable things there well and also uh, you know a set payment versus passing the hat is always nice like you know how much you're getting in a check sometimes you go out there and you can do a, a good show and it's not always represented in the hat you get there how yeah. did you handle the passing the hat was that something you liked or were you intimidated by that part of it of actually having to ask for money I was intimidated by that I didn't like it, and I learned how to write a hat speech, and I learned how to ask for money publicly, and you, I think it actually made me a stronger business person, and even raising my own rates and sticking to my rates and just asking for what I want. There's no nothing wrong with that, and that increased my confidence with everything money-wise. Having to do that publicly is, like, crazy to me. So now Way easier on the phone with one person. You're just like. <laughs> and you see the different approaches. Did you watch the other acts out there and kind of see how they approached it? 
Oh yeah, I am such a juggling fan. I have been watching street shows like ever since I moved to the Bay Area. If I had a free day and I had not seen that person, I would specifically go out to Pier 39 to watch them and then meet them. I think that's the best way. I think a lot of people don't do enough research. They don't approach it enough as a job where they can look at their competitors. They can watch what's already out there, not in a way to to steal what they're doing, but to be informed. Yeah. To be knowledgeable. And I am a methodical person. So that's exactly, yeah, I did do that. I researched everybody who's in the Bay and what they're doing and what I could do different and how I could be different. And it works. Now, you went to one Buskers Festival. You went to the San Diego Buskers Festival. Was that an interesting experience, sort of traveling to a different location and street performing there? What was that one like? Yeah, that was a real tough gig. At the time, about two weeks before that festival, I bruised my heel. I was practicing how to free mount the giraffe unicycle. I really wanted that to be in my street show. Like, it's such a good trick. And, you know, I just landed on my foot the wrong way and I bruised my heel. And I didn't really know how to treat it. I mean, I had seen a doctor and they didn't say stay off of it. It was just a very, very painful experience. So I went to, I went all the way down to San Diego with some friends and we did a road trip. You know, we had a whole thing planned. It was still fun, but I didn't enjoy the shows because I was injured. I did less shows because I was injured and I couldn't do my giraffe unicycle because there's no way I was going to jump down from that thing and hurt myself further. So I was just taking care of myself I don't think I had like the ideal experience I wanted to have. I didn't have my big trick that I wanted to do, but it was really informative. It was more street style than Pier 39. You had to draw a crowd from, yeah, from zero. And, uh, and I saw a lot of great people there and I made, made a lot of great friends. It was a good experience. <laughs> Who, who'd you see there? Who stood out as being a very fine street performer, a good example of that kind of act? I saw, is it Derek? Derek, Derek. Mick Azard? Yes, yeah, I saw I saw Chad. Wacky Chad. Wacky Chad, yeah. Oh, he was yeah. great. Wacky um, Chad's great. My friend Sarah Kunz got me out there. She has she does the hula hoops on like a giant coconut tree. She's the flying Hawaiian. Hmm. Greg Frisbee got to see his show. Right. Who else was out there? Well, that's some good ones. I mean, Greg Frisbee's good, and Wacky Chad I find to be very has a lot of the tools. Yeah. To be a to be a great performer, he's you know got a good look, good energy, great skills. And he's got the big tricks. Yeah, he did the like backflips on a pogo stick. And I was like, whoa, I'm not working <laughs> hard enough. He really made me feel like I needed to work on my show a lot. <laughs> well, it's, it's, sometimes there are, there are shows or tricks on the street that have that impact. And you think, well, you have to have that. But then you'll see another show like Greg Frisbee where it's more of charm <laughs> and kind of more of a personality. Or even clown shows, you know, where they're not even doing much skill at all. <laughs> uh, like Fraser Hooper or something where there's not you know, a skill element of like unicycling or juggling. But the rapport they have with the crowds is so great that they're able to make it work. It's really a diverse a set of skills you need to be on the street. Yeah. But there's no real rules per se. Because it's surprising what works. It's surprising sometimes what doesn't work on the street. You've also done some international work. I remember hearing about you going to Dubai. And I, I was quite jealous at the time because I hadn't been to Dubai myself. And I thought, wow, Brie gets to go to D- Dubai. <laughs> I know you're like there for like a month, but that was a clown job. What kind of job did you do in Dubai? Yeah, so I got connected to this job pretty early on in my performance career. And it was a job where they wanted, I would say there was about 15 of us. They wanted 15 American 
in quote, like ringling style clowns. They wanted the traditional American clown look. And so I got connected with some people through the World Clown Association, and I got the job. And I think I got the job because I was available, and I had nice makeup, and I had some skills and some some performance tapes. So we were there for uh, about a month, and we did three shows a day, about six days a week, in shopping malls. Yeah, most of the work there is in malls because it's it's very hot in Dubai. Yeah, nobody outside. <laughs> were you in indoor malls? Because unfortunately, when I did Dubai, I was actually at an outdoor. Woo! Yeah, we were indoor. So I was there in January. And for the Dubai Shopping Festival, what a cultural experience, the Shopping Festival. And yeah, uh, yeah we were indoors in indoor malls. So being outside there sounds horrible. <laughs> it was pretty horrible. <laughs> yeah. And there were times when they wanted you to perform in a certain area. That made no sense at all. Oh, gosh, yeah. Like, there's shade here, but you want me to perform 20 feet away in the blazing sun. Luckily for me, I had brought my own little portable sound system. Yes. Because they're like, that's where this sound system is. Like, But I have my own system. Like, oh, okay, then you can move over into the shade. Oh, good. And that's a li- that's been a lifesaver for me to bring my own little portable yes. sound system. I've been discovering that more and more. Just bring my own stuff all the time and... Less things go wrong. <laughs> yeah, even if you have it in the car, like you go and do like a, to some party or show. Yeah. You think, they think they might have a sound system and they go, oh, we wanted to save money and we decided not to get a sound system. You're like, well, then why'd you hire an entertainer? Yeah. <laughs> they go, well. Yeah, recently this weekend, actually, they were like, oh, no, it's fine. We have a sound system. And like you, see, like you said, yeah, I brought it anyway and I had it in the car. And then they didn't know how to use their sound system. And they kept getting terrible feedback. So we just turned it off and I brought mine out. Yeah, then you're the lifesaver and you, yeah, you thought and ahead. and Yeah, so that, so did you meet other good clowns? Did you learn like sort of more clowning? Oh, in Dubai. Yeah, so there was this whole crew from Mexico. And oh my gosh, the Mexican clowns are just so delightful. They do, they do, not like they do everything different, but they do everything in their own style. And they had like this really amazing makeup with neon colors and they were so fun and warm. And there was a language barrier. So their entertainment is like very big and visual and and they were also talented. Um, some of them could do like break dancing and backflips and some of them are really good at magic and playing music. They were very inspirational to meet up with. To me. And you told me you, you studied with a local performer and his thing is is actors who hate clowns and clowns who hate actors. Right. This is a Ron Campbell. You said you've got a lot from his work. Yeah, there's a, a clown. He's also he's also an actor. He'll do plays like Don Quixote or he does a lot of characters. Uh, he has been a clown in some Cirque show. I don't know which one. I didn't research that thoroughly, but um. He does these weekly classes with all kinds of improv exercises and group work. And, you know, he has a lot of taglines for his class. One is like a jungle gym for the mind. And he's kind of has the mentality, a little bit of you go there to fail. You go there to try stuff and you don't know what's going to happen. And he'll give you prompts and it's either a solo exercise or, or you do it with a few people. And, and I find going to that is, is valuable. Because you can take risks and chances and just be vulnerable. Have you ever tried the uh, the Celebration Barn out in Maine? Yes, I did Abner's workshop for two weeks. 
about three years ago, and that was totally transformative for my performance career. I really learned how to relax, and I saw how creative some people could be and how they bring their ideas to life. And it just really made me realize there's no limits to my imagination and what and how I can perform that. I also had terrible, terrible stage fright. Like I would freeze up on stage. I didn't know what to do. I would blank out. And it turns out Avner is a hypnotherapist. Mm -hmm. And I, I did have do like experience like a light hypnosis session for stage fright. And yeah, it turned me around. It really helped. Good, because I, I'm a good friend of Abner's, and I think he's a wonderful person. I've been able to sit in on a couple of his workshops, and he does some great work with people and really helps them, like you say, transform. I need to go back there. I need to make time one summer to go back. And also, we were lucky recently that uh, Michael Cherick came to town. He was in a, a local show for the, a weekend, and you got to study with Michael Cherick. What yeah. kind of techniques and tips did he give you? He's, a, of course, an old school son of Lottie Brun, nephew of Francis Brun. What kind of tips did he give you? Mostly on ball spinning or were there other yeah. techniques as well? Yeah. So ball spinning, I mean, there's only like a couple techniques and once you get them, like that's it. So I got to learn, I got to try to learn how to do the back roll with three balls balanced, one on each finger and one on a mouth stick. But really with ball spinning, from my point of view, there's only so far you can go. Unless you're going to put in a lot of additional time to like learn some acrobatics. And I'm just not that way. Unfortunately, my ball spinning has reached its cap. I think of how skillful it's going to be. Mm -hmm. uh, were, were you able to do the three ball rollover? That's quite a difficult stunt. Or was that? Almost. Yeah. I think I, yeah, almost got it. Almost. I think that's also very tough on your back. I know he had to eventually stop. Yes. It, so it's actually really, really, really hard on your neck. Yeah. And when I spent about half an hour in my studio working on it, it's just not worth it. It's I don't know what kind of like long-term problems can come from that. And at this point, I don't need to learn that trick. So my health is more important than learning that trick, basically. Well, you're in for it for the long run. I mean, I see you as a person who now that they've found yeah. path in life. It, this is going to be it. Ultimately, the long-term goal is to be a magician. Oh. Yeah. No way. And, and leave juggling behind? How, how dare you? Well, I mean, I've, all, I've always loved Charlie Fry. I want to be Charlie Fry. You know, we all want to be Charlie Fry. <laughs> I've tried to get him on the podcast many times. He's one of my favorite performers. Oh, he's, yeah. He's definitely one of my top three, for sure. And do you have his DVDs, The Eccentric? Oh, I have all of them. Yes, I've been watching those ever since I was 15. And, you know, I watch him every couple of years. And he's just, like, hilarious to me. I think that set of DVDs, the eccentric series, if you just got those and just basically did those routines and followed his instructions, that's all you'd have to do. Yeah. The thing is, is like, it's so skilled. Like everything he's doing takes years and years and years and years of practice. Well, to get to his level. I mean, yeah. he gives you the tools, but it's not like, oh, okay, yeah, in one minute I'm going to do this. It's, and you see how beautifully he does everything. Yeah. I, he's like the master at like blending magic and juggling and character. And in 10 years, that's that's what I'll be doing. There you go. Let's talk about your show now and the stuff you do now. I was going through your website and there were some descriptions of your routines. So let's kind of go through these and you can tell me what, what it actually means in layman's term and what, what people can expect to see. 
Because like uh, you have hair acrobatics. Is that uh, hanging from your hair and, and doing? <laughs> no. So I have discovered over the years, just funny things would happen with my hair. It'll get caught somewhere or cover my face or I can learn to spin it around. I wrote this description for my website just from sure. like a quirky standpoint of what are you going to see that you would not normally see in a juggling show? Right. You don't want to go like, you'll see balls and rings and clubs. Yeah. So you're going to see some hair acrobatics. I am a big fan of crimping my hair. So I just love to point that out any chance I get. And cr crimping is, is like a, with a heat, yeah, heat iron or something? Like, yeah, stereotypical 80s crimper. I found one at a thrift store one day and I was like, whoa, that's for me. I, I've never crimped my hair. I'm not much of a hair crimper. Well, I have an extra one. I'll send it. Do you have an extra one? Yeah. Okay. Well, now every time I see one, I'll I'll get it. I'll buy one. Okay. For, for gifts and stuff, so everybody will uh, spread the love of crimping. I need to figure out how to make them battery powered so I can roller skate around and crimp people's hair. There you go. That would be that would certainly be unique. And also with your roller skating, it would be good because it also says you have calves of steel. Yeah. Yeah. Calves. So that's the sexy part of the description. And that's it? The calves of steel? <laughs> yeah. Uh, so I have some jokes about about my calves and. Are you especially proud of your calves? Is that the feature? I don't. They're just. I mean, unicycling and. Right. Yeah, I will get comments on like, "Oh my god, look at your calves." Well, that's, that's nice. Maybe I'll, I'll post a picture for you guys. <laughs> People always say to me, "Oh my god, look at your ear hair." <laughs> that's maybe not as. We all have our own unique qualities. <laughs> exactly. How about your gravity-defying toothbrush? That is a funny little juggling trick. That I also learned while I was in Europe. You can balance a toothbrush on the end of your finger and spin it around like a propeller. And it uh, just kind of stays there with um, science. No, I've, seen, I've done that a little bit myself. I never had it in my show. But it's a fun little trick where you put your finger underneath the, the bristles. Yes. And kind of use that kind of as a little bit of a, uh, kind of a balance point. And then if you spin it. If you do it the right way, it won't fly off. You can kind of spin it like a propeller. Yeah. And I've always loved that trick. Yeah. It's not like I have a whole routine about it. It's just, it's a one-off and I still do it every chance I get. It might be kind of fun if you had a giant toothbrush. I do have a giant toothbrush. That's a great idea. Yeah. Then you maybe could juggle with one hand and do the, the giant toothbrush with the other uh -huh. hand. Oh, for a combo trick? Yeah. It'd be kind of a fun thing to add to a combo trick and maybe have some comic potential. Yeah. That's a good idea. I'll try that juggling club on Thursday. Are you going tonight to the uh, the spin jam in the Emeryville? The oh. Flow Toys Jam? You know, I go to that every once in a while. I like to just stay home at nighttime. <laughs> well, you're kind of surrounded by jugglers anyways, so it's, it's easier. My job is so social, yeah. And especially this time of year, like, I don't want to go out of my house if I don't have to. I have a studio downstairs in my uh, loft apartment, so the, they all come to me on Thursdays. Right, so you don't have to travel. The jugglers come to you. Yeah, I used to go to every juggling club in the Bay like every week religiously. Like I'd go to Berkeley and Castor Valley and San Francisco. Right. Not so much anymore. Well, I think you did it right. I mean, you surround yourself with jugglers and then eventually you start seeing their shows. And then when you sort of get together and juggle, it's a different format. You probably don't learn as much. It's social, but as far as the learning and growing, it's probably like, well, if they'll come to me on Thursdays. That's enough. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's it's a social experience. It's also sort of like forced practice time. Well, that's like the festivals too. I mean, very rarely do you practice as much as you do at a festival. 
you're just encouraged, you're inspired, and wow, I juggled eight hours today. Yeah, the juggling club is so good at my house. Like, I just go down, and then I'm like definitely doing stuff for three hours every week. What is your practice schedule like, and what kind of tricks are you working on? What are the, what are the props you like to use? My practice schedule is pretty erratic. It does center around my gig schedule, and most of the tricks in the show are pretty solid. Like, I don't need to practice them. But I do have like dream tricks that I want to be in the show. But I'm pretty bad about scheduling solid practice time for that. What are, what are the dream tricks? What trick? Could you just have a couple examples? Yeah, I can almost do it. I could probably do it like seven out of ten times. But I want to balance the umbrella on my nose and then throw my hat up to the umbrella as like a capper for the mm-hmm. end of my umbrella set. Oh, I actually, I'm working on a lot of teacup tricks. So I'm, I got, I'm juggling sugar cubes and I can throw them into the teacup balanced on my head. I've been practicing putting the teaspoon on my foot and tossing that, kicking it up into the teacup also still on my head. Uh, I do have an adult cabaret act with teacups that I'm trying to convert into an all ages act. Like the teacups are kind of a bra at this point. Yeah, I made a, like a vest bra where the teacups are right in front of the boobs and it's still totally a pg-13 act sure it's all just innuendo and visual innuendo right plus your personality and, and character is so you can see it online and i juggle the sugar cubes and they they land in the teacups and they go ding ding and then i can like shake them around kind of like a burlesque person would but i'm totally clothed and it's just a fun wacky act that reminds me of another show you did recently, which I have never done. I've heard great things about it, which is uh, Scott Neary's Booby Trap. Yes. I love what's, what's that experience like? That's a very short set, right? With lots of performers. Yeah. You only get four minutes. Sorry, someone's calling me. It's all right. Maybe it's a gig. No. I put it on silent. Okay. Well, we're almost well, done. If it's a gig, they'll leave me. If they really want me, they'll leave a message. Well, if they do, get right back to them because <laughs> you know when the gigs come up. Booby Trap is super fun. Yeah, it's mostly about the hang and meeting the other right. performers. And I've seen so much great stuff there and so much weird stuff that's like great quality too. Yeah, so whenever I go down to LA, I like to schedule to be in Booby Trap. And Scott Neary used to be a Bay Area performer, and that's how I met him. And I've always been a big fan of his uh, comedy, his awkward mm-hmm. comedy. Yeah, he's a great performer. I'd, I'd like to uh, reconnect with him. I had, I've had my experiences with him that I think I put him off a bit. I was a bit too critical, I think, in my, in my past days of other performers sometimes. Yeah, yeah. Well, he's doing like a very niche sort of comedy. And it's like part of his personality. And mm-hmm. I totally connect with that. I, I feel a lot of that, too. I'm sure we've all had awkward experiences with Scott Neary. <laughs> well, I think mine was more awkward than most, but we'll, we'll leave it at that. Uh, now, another great hangout is, is something you've done that maybe I've, I've done a few times and maybe we'll do again in the future, is a venue called Moisture Festival in Seattle. Yeah, I'd love to go back. I applied to go for 2019. We'll see. Is that in March? I forget exactly when that when that runs. The festival runs an entire month, yes. And I believe it's mid-March to mid-April. Right. And for me... I created a new show. It's inspired by Dr. Seuss, and I am marketing it to libraries uh, because March is actually National Reading Month, and they celebrate Dr. Seuss's birthday, like the entire Perfect. 
Yeah, yeah, the entire. So when I found that out, I was like, oh, well, that's pretty natural direction to go. Right. And the Silly Sue show has a combination of juggling, magic, variety, entertainment. And I take excerpts from the Dr. Seuss books and sort of like bring the tricks to life. And I recite some of the poems and silly things happen. Well, the library circuit sounds like a, a natural fit for you. Yeah. Yeah, and that but so good... that kind of like conflicts a little bit with Moisture Festival, and I've like booked out all of March, so we I gotta find out about that quick. Well, plus Moisture Festival, it's a good hangout, but I wouldn't say as far as payment goes, it's as lucrative as even maybe one or two library shows. I mean, I do the gigs for money, but I also do the gigs just to travel and meet other cool performers and. Exactly like Booby Trap. Like when, when I went to Moisture Festival, I think it, it was Eddie Kenton. Freddie. Freddie. Yeah. Uh, Freddie Kenton. Yeah. He did like <laughs> the coolest things, balancing like really, really tall balance objects and then playing like onto a violin and playing a song. And I'm like, that's just weird. I've never seen that. And he's a very old school gentleman. Yeah. He's a very classic juggler. I got yeah. to meet him in, uh, in Amsterdam. He's actually also... Uh, one of the mentors of Niels Dunker, who I, who I work with. Oh, I didn't know that. Okay. <laughs> yeah, him and I are, are sort of co-mentors for Niels. And so when I met him, I found this guy is charming. Yes. Right? He's a great person and a, a great performer, so I'm glad you had a chance to, to see Freddie. Yeah, that was a special highlight of my Moisture Festival two years ago. Well, it sounds like you have the whole thing wired. You know, you have a good mix. You have a good approach of, of being both analytical creative, also practical. And I, I see a great future for you, Brie. Thanks, Dan. Yeah, I definitely love to use my brain and figured out that this job lets me use all parts of the brain in that way. <laughs> well, thanks for sharing your story with us and the listeners of Drop Everything. And I'm glad you were my final interview of this year. And I expect great things in the coming year and all the coming years from, from you, the fantastic Brie Crabtree. Thank you, Brie. Thank you, Dan. I hope you enjoyed Drop Everything Podcast number 65, my conversation with Bree Crabtree. Happy holidays, Bree. Enjoy being an elf and enjoy all the years of success your juggling and magic and your wonderful career will bring you. All right, let's thank our sponsor one last time this year. Of course, that is the IJA, International Jugglers Association. Find out about the IJ at juggle.org. Don't forget a wonderful festival is coming up next year in Fort Wayne, Indiana, directed by the one and only David Kane. All right, that's it for me, Dan Holzman. It's too late to buy a ring dama. It's too late to buy my book. So I want to just sign off by saying happy holidays, Merry Christmas, and drop everything except when you're juggling.